So Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man. And the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him, Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed." I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all of this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. 
I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and had had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in the favour of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty power and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts. My face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Thanks, Zoe. Well, uh, just to get out of the way, I know, I know some people are endlessly fascinated by my clothes. I did buy new shoes, uh, and yes, they are exactly the same almost as the ones I had before. So I know that some of you will be sitting there going, are they the same shoes that he had before? They look new. So I just want to clear, it, clear that up right from the very beginning. Well, the book of Daniel is a strange book, isn't it? Uh, The section we just read is the first thing that you've ever heard from the book of Daniel. Uh, You will probably agree uh, that the book of Daniel is a strange book. But adding to its strangeness, I think, is the fact that this is very much a book of two halves. The first half is full of the accounts of Daniel and his friends living their lives as refugees in ancient Babylon. But the, uh, and the second half of the book is kind of full of dreams and visions of the future. In the first half of the book, uh, Daniel and his friends, even though they're tried and tested, they still manage to lead, lead relatively peaceful and quiet lives. But the second half of the book presents a more sobering picture. Andrew Reid, in his little commentary on Daniel, uh, observes that these last chapters ask more pressing questions than the first chapters. They ask questions like, what would happen when things are no longer bearable? What would happen when the malice, arrogance and resentment of pagan kings could no longer be handled by the people of God? What would happen when persecution became intolerable? How could the people of God face a world where they were no longer rescued a world where the flames consumed them and lions tore them apart. If things did get worse, how could they be grappled with? How could God, could be, how could God be explained? How could he be lived for in a world like that? 
See what he's saying? He's saying that in the first section of the book, God delivers the people from the lion's den. He delivers them from the furnace. But the second half of the book asks these more pressing questions. What happens if God doesn't do that? What happens if, if it's not going to be like that in the future? What do we do then? Well, this chapter and the ones in the rest of the book try to answer those questions. And to answer that question here in chapter 7, Daniel is given a vision by God. In his dream, he sees four beasts coming up out of the sea. And the sea, it helps to know, was considered a a turbulent and tumultuous and, and dangerous place. And out of the sea comes these beasts. There's four of them. And they correspond to the four kingdoms uh, that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream back in chapter 2. The first beast was like a lion with the wings of an eagle. The wings of the beast are torn off and it's it's lifted onto its two feet to stand up like a human being. And the beast is given a human heart. The figure represented by this beast is Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, In chapter 4, when he lost his mind and went mad, his hair was described as being like the feathers of an eagle. And he was driven away to live with the beasts of the field. But when he repented, when he turned to God, he received a right heart and he became, if you like, like a true human being. The second beast looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side. Kind of the lopsidedness picks up on the dual nature of the kingdom which came after the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, it was the joining of two smaller empires. And they were kind of, there was a kind of imbalance between that combination. And so these two kingdoms are often pictured in Daniel as kind of being slightly skewed, slightly lopsided. This beast had uh, three ribs in its mouth and between, uh, and between its teeth and it was told to get up and eat your fill of flesh. The third beast looked like a leopard with four wings on its back, with four heads, and it was given, we're told, authority to rule. The fourth beast is the most frightening of all and the most terrifying and the most powerful. It had large iron teeth, like the feet of iron and clay in chapter 2. It crushed and devoured its victims, and it had these strange tin horns And three of those horns are ripped out and replaced by a horn that speaks boastfully. Well, it's a strange picture, isn't it? Beast with wings, beast with four heads, uh, horns that speak. It's a strange picture, but actually in its strangeness lies its power. It's a bit like the Old Testament version of uh, George Orwell's famous novel, Animal Farm. Orwell uh, represented the communist experiment by using a farm full of talking animals and, uh, and pigs that ended up walking on their hind legs. The imagery of that book is strange and unusual, but it's actually trying to make quite a serious point. And no one reads the book and goes, oh, well, that's ridiculous. Animals talking to each other and pigs walking? No, people read it and they see it for what it is. It's, a, it's illustrative language actually designed to make a profound point. Or you might think of something like uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Nobody's put off by the elves and the dwarves and uh, the hobbits and uh, the Nazgul. The strangeness of those characters 
and the images of those characters help us uh, help Tolkien to develop some of the themes of his book. Tolkien was arguably making comments about the real world, but he was doing that using fantastic imaginary characters. So too, that's what God is doing. The only difference is that Daniel 7 is using the imagery, this fantastic imagery, not to reflect merely on the world as it is, but also to reflect on the world as it would be. Daniel looks to the future, or to his future at least. God gives him a vision of what is to come. So what's the imagery trying to convey? Well, notice that in this chapter there's actually very little information about any one of these kingdoms. Most of them are kind of take up about a verse or two. That's it. This isn't a timeline for the future, uh, for the people of Daniel's day to kind of map out exactly when the things would come to pass. Still less is it a timeline for us to kind of map out when all these things were to come to pass. No, that's not the point. The details really boil down to a few simple uh, elements. These kingdoms are beastly. These kingdoms are violent. These kingdoms seem to get worse. And one leader in particular is especially defiant and especially boastful. You see, for the people of Daniel's day, the message was for them that they were in it for the long haul. They might have hoped that once Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom uh, had come to an end, they might have hoped that things would be put right. When Daniel received this vision, it was uh, probably about halfway through Nebuchadnezzar's reign or something like that. Cyrus, the king who would come and who would defeat the Babylonian Empire, he was beginning to rise up over in uh, uh, in the west, I think it was. And they might have begun to think to themselves, we're almost back. Do you see God's raising up Cyrus? He's raising him up. He's going to defeat Nebuchadnezzar and we're going to go back home and it's all going to be good again. But God actually is saying, no, there are other kingdoms still to come. And if you thought that Babylon was bad, well, Babylon, Babylon's like a beast that becomes human in comparison to some of the kingdoms that are yet to come. It would be 550 years after this dream that the great deliverance would finally come. And while Daniel's dream is chiefly about his time and his life and the time between his time and the coming of Jesus, nevertheless, this pattern of vicious kingdoms rising and falling continues to be played out throughout history. In a similar way, we can tend to get a little overexcited, I think, about the rise and fall of certain governments and empires. Sometimes you think that uh, for some people the election of the Liberal Party spells kind of the, uh, the coming of the Kingdom of God and the great hope for the survival of Christianity. Or I could point to other people who think that the Labour Party uh, heralds the coming of the Kingdom of God. We watch governments come and go all the time. And our hopes rise and fall with those governments coming and going. We see governments rise up in other parts of the world and we think, well, now that this government has come in the Middle East, we know that things, you know, things are going to get better from here on. 
But actually, we have no idea what's going on, do we? One government comes and another goes. It would be an insult, I think, to those people who live under truly vicious and tyrannical kingdoms and tyrannical governments to think that the Australian government, that our country, that our government comes even remotely close to some of the beastly rules described in this chapter. Things aren't that bad for us. I don't think we can read Daniel 7 and go, well, you know, it's like for us, it's like that second beast with the, with the ribs in its mouth. No, it's not that bad. For some people it is. But the pattern remains. Ronald Reagan famously said, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. <laughs> Things are good now, but they might not be in a decade or a year even. One government can be replaced by a tyrannical one, just as a tyrannical one can be replaced by a good government. We don't know the future. There were difficult times ahead for people in Daniel's day and there may be difficult times ahead for us as well. The Bible does seem to talk about a time of very great difficulty before the coming of Jesus. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. But the point for the moment is, I think, that we live in turbulent and tumultuous tumultuous times and we need to be prepared for the possibility, at least, that things may get worse before they get better. We live in turbulent and dangerous times and we need to be prepared for the possibility that things may get worse before they get better. But Daniel's, hope, uh, Daniel's vision offers us a measure of hope as well. In the middle of thinking about that fourth beast and that boastful horn, he sees out of nowhere this incredible vision of God. It just springs out of nowhere. Verse 9, as I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Here is a vision of God, the Ancient of Days, blindingly white, flaming with fire, with a river of fire flowing from the throne and thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Here is the Ancient of Days, not flustered, not running around trying to put out fires on the earth, sitting down in all his glory. You see, here's the other perspective on the world. There are turbulent and violent human kingdoms. That's one view. And there is the Ancient of Days. High and lifted up. Seated on the throne. In control of the events of history. Andrew Reid, in his little commentary on, on Daniel, highlights that just as these beasts all come out of the sea... The sea is a great metaphor for the perspective of this chapter. You see, the sea to us is a wild and untamable beast, isn't it? 
It's beyond our control. Even in uh, modern ships, the sea is a treacherous place to be. One of my friends is studying at AMC at the moment to be a, um, uh, to be a sailor. And uh, very honest about the dangers of going to sea. It's a dangerous place. Great, powerful waves can sink a ship. Still, in the 21st century. I remember when I used to surf uh, near Torquay in Victoria, the swells there in winter can be pretty big uh, and pretty uh, tempestuous and it was quite intimidating at times, especially for someone as intimidated as myself. Uh, and I still remember... I still remember foolishly going out one day in a break, at a break that was uh, beyond me uh, and in conditions that were beyond me. Uh, it was a pretty stupid thing to do, to be honest. Uh, and I was out there and the waves were coming in and I was sitting in a place that I thought was okay. And, you know, you have that feeling, you look out the back and a big, swell, a big set's coming through. And you think to yourself, crumbs. <laughs> what am I going to do? And you paddle your guts out. And I remember only just making it over the crest of the wave. And I always think to myself, I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't have made it over the crest of that wave. Because I was gone. I had nothing left. The sea is a tempestuous place. The world is a tempestuous and dangerous place. But you see, here's the thing. Even though the sea looks powerful and untamable and dangerous, it's still God's sea. It's still under God's control. He still reigns. He still rules from his throne in heaven. God's still sitting down. We're paddling our guts out. And God's sitting down. So often we view the world through a kind of a lens. You know, we look... And all we see is the thing that we're focused on. The world seems as though it's getting worse. And maybe they are. Christians are being slaughtered in Iraq and Syria. Christianity in the West is being marginalised and excluded from the public square. We see turmoil. But we fail to see the bigger picture. We become fixated on a turbulent world and we fail to notice that just out of our vision, just out of the frame, is God. High and lifted up. That's true of the geopolitical world, the world out there. It's also true of the more mundane, ordinary parts of life. We become transfixed by our turbulent lives and we feel that God has abandoned us to drown. And we need to keep stepping back. That's what God says to Daniel. We need to zoom out and catch a glimpse again of the glory of God. That's what we do on Sunday, isn't it? (laughs) Because we find it so hard to do during the week. We set time aside to zoom out and to see God high and lifted up. To forget the turbulent and tumultuous times 
to forget the geopolitical struggles and the nuclear threats and the global war on terrorism and to set that aside and to seeing your hand of mercy reaches out and takes hold of us. We have in this dream a picture of a violent and tumultuous human kingdoms, but we also have a picture of the powerful and calm rule of Almighty God. Finally, uh, we also have a picture of the vindication of God's people. Uh, In verse 11, we're told that I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. And again in verse 26, But the court will sit, that is the court of God, the heavenly court, and his power will be taken away, the power of the beast and of these evil kingdoms. His power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High God. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. Well, it's a great encouragement, isn't it, to know that God is with us in the midst of turbulent and tumultuous times. But it's not really a long-term goal, is it? God promises here not just to be with his people and to be watching over his people. God promises here eventual victory. What it is like today, it will not always be like. The court will sit in judgment. And even the boastful rule, even the most antagonistic opponents of the people of God, even the most violent oppressors will be taken away and removed forever. The books of judgment will be opened. And evil people and evil kingdoms destroyed. How God will do that is not entirely clear in this chapter, but there is the slightest hint There's mentioned ever so briefly this mysterious figure, I don't know if you picked it up, one like a son of man. In comparison to the beastly rule of these human kings comes one who who comes in the image that God made humanity to rule over God's creation, under God, in peace, for the glory of God. He's given authority, glory and sovereign power and his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. He is the ultimate human king. What we were supposed to be but never have been. And yet this strange figure comes on the clouds of heaven. That's the way that God comes. When God travelled with his people on the way out of Egypt, he came with them as a pillar of cloud. When God met with Moses and the people at Mount Sinai, he appeared on the mountain from the cloud. And when the glory of the Lord filled the temple, it would come as a cloud to surround the tabernacle. Psalm 104 verse 3 says of the Lord, he makes the clouds his chariot. So too, this one like the Son of Man comes with the clouds. And this mysterious Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days and is led into his presence in a way that no other human being has ever done. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And who can stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol, 
or swear by what is false. He approaches the Ancient of Days. He is worshipped when the only person who can be worshipped is God alone. Even more cryptically, Daniel introduces here for the first time a similar but slightly different way of referring to the Most High. There's two ways in this chapter of talking about the Most High and they're used side by side in verse 25. You don't see it in the NIV, unfortunately. But in the ESV it says this, He shall speak words against the Most High, that's the normal way in Daniel of referring to God, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High. It's a slightly different way of talking about the Most High. It's just a hint, the first hint of the mind-blowing reality that came to expression in the person of Jesus. You see, this figure in Daniel 7 is the true human being, what we were always meant to be. But because of our sin and our rebellion against God that runs through our veins, we have never been that. This one like a son of man is the perfect man. But this one like the son of man is also the most high. Appearing as God appears, being worshipped as God is worshipped. And 550 years after Daniel's dream, Jesus came and God became man. He came to defeat the beastly and tyrannical human kingdoms which set themselves up against God and which set themselves up against fellow human beings. He came to defeat them not with a sword but with a cross, not by trampling them underfoot but by laying down his life. Not to take the kingdom for himself alone but to share it with his people. The angel tells Daniel, The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, but the saints, the Most High, will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. And in case we didn't get it the first time, yes, forever and ever. How long will it be? Forever and ever. It won't be like these kingdoms that come and go, one after another. When will it be? How long will this one go on for? It won't be like that. It will be forever. Really? Yes. Forever and ever. I was going to say that forever is almost outside our vocabulary, but actually that's not true, is it? There's no good way to admit this, so I'll just have to come out and say it, but I found myself watching this week The Twilight Saga. It's been showing on ABC. For the uninitiated, uh, the Twilight Saga is about the frustrated romance between a vampire and a, and a human girl. But breathless romance aside, what I found so fascinating and so affecting, actually, was the deep longing for Forever. These are the words of one of the headline songs. It promises, I've loved you for a thousand years. I'll love you for a thousand more. 
You see, Tolkien was right when he said that our myths and our stories tell us something about our deepest longings and our deepest desires. We don't want to live for a lifetime. We want to live forever. We don't want to love and to be loved for a lifetime because a lifetime seems much too short, doesn't it? A truth which has been driven home, I think, in a particularly shocking way this past week with the death of Philip Hughes. But what's so haunting, I think, about our films and our songs is that they show us the problem, but they don't give us the answer. They leave us depressed rather than hopeful, and they leave us longing rather than satisfied. Whenever I watch a film, it just sucks the life out of me. It takes me a day to get back to a hopeful life. Because they don't give us the answer. But what if immortality and forever and eternity aren't consigned to the pages of novels and books and films and songs? What if there was an answer to the tyranny of human kingdoms and to the brutality of life? What if immortality didn't mean becoming a beast? What if forever didn't mean becoming less human, but becoming truly human? In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. It's beautiful, isn't it? God entered our world to restore our fallen humanity. I don't know why I'm so emotional. To destroy injustice, to destroy sin, to destroy evil, to destroy beastly rule, to redeem us and to remake us. And whoever receives the Son of Man receives the kingdom of God. For how long? For a lifetime? No. But forever and ever. It almost sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It almost sounds like another myth lifted from the pages of a book, from the words of a song. But God gave proof to it by telling Daniel about it 500 years before it happened. And Daniel gave, God gave proof of it by raising Jesus from the dead. We live in turbulent and tumultuous kingdoms, in a turbulent and tumultuous world. But God wins in the end. God sits enthroned in heaven And he calls us to come to Jesus, the Son of Man, the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his people will share with him in eternity. Let me pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your words to your people, your insights into the future, your insights into our lives, your insights into the difficulties and dramas of history. And Lord, perhaps these things resonate so strongly with us and affect us so deeply because we know these realities so well and we long so much for all that we were created to have. Those echoes of Eden which linger in our world those echoes of a better life, a life without evil and injustice, a life without sin and death, those echoes of Eden which find their fulfilment, which find their redemption and which find their restoration in the person of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God did not consider Equality with God, something to be grasped or used to his own advantage, but rather made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being found in human likeness, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Lord, thank you that in Jesus Christ, all our hopes and dreams and aspirations, all our desires are met in him. Father, we pray that you would hasten that day when he returns to put our world finally and forever to right. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.